You're listening to the Legal Design Podcast. My name is Henna Tolvanen. And I am Nina Toivonen. This is Legal Talk Out of the Box. In this episode, we talk with Zane Johnson, an attorney from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who believes that making social impact and positive change in the legal industry is possible through private legal practice. Zane is a manager of his own firm, M. Jane and Associates, that provides legal services, especially to startups and small businesses. Thank you for joining us, Jane. Thank you for having me. It is so great to have you as our guest, Zane. What would you like to tell about yourself to our listeners? Um, I mean, where to start? I guess, um, you know, I would start by saying, Um, I kind of look at myself not in terms of, you know, just kind of what I do as an attorney, but, you know, looking at that as one part of who I am as an entire human being. So, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm also a, a new father. I'm a husband. Um, I'm a son. I'm a brother. Uh, I'm a friend. Um, and so, you know, I think that there are so many different, you know, words that I would kind of use to describe myself and what's important to me. Um, you know, but I just think at the end of the day, I'm just one person as part of this great big human family. And, and I love to connect and with other people and hear their perspective and, and get context that helps me to shed light on things that maybe I'm unable to see. So I'm, I'm really excited for this conversation and to be a part of the podcast today. So are we and congratulations on the baby. That's great news. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Um, hey, Zane, how did you become a lawyer? For me, it was really important. I had a lot, a lot of people when I was younger who really kind of put in my mind that being an attorney was something that I could do. And I think that without those people, I probably would have never even it a, a possibility or thought of it as, as something that, um, you know, I could ultimately you know, that I only practice law. Um, you know, I, I got a lot when I was younger. Well, you like to argue, you should become an attorney. Um, but I, you know, I also had some teachers in high school who said, you know, you should consider law school. And I think at the time I was like, you know, I'm going to do four years of college and then seven more years, three more years of, of school after that. So seven total years of school. Yeah, right. I don't think so. <laughs> um, but if it wasn't for the, for people planting that seed in my mind that, becoming an attorney was something that I could do. I don't think that I ever would have went ahead and pursued it. So uh, at the moment you work as an attorney, when and how did you get interested in legal design? Um, so I actually came across legal design relatively recently. Um, I was, uh, well, first I'll say I, I came across the concept of design thinking before I came Um, and as someone who tends to see things from a, a big picture view, um, and, and I'm a really purpose driven person as well. Um, so it's really important that like, I know, like, what is, what, what is, what are my kind of minute daily efforts going to in a big picture way? Um, you know, th design thinking in general was something that I found really attractive in terms of, you know, a way of thinking about solving problems, um, and, and being really intentional about how you do little things in order to make sure that the larger macro problem is, is able to be solved in a way that's efficient. 
and, and that actually works for the, the folks that you're trying to serve. Um, so I came across uh, legal design, I think uh, last fall of, of 2020, um, and it was just through LinkedIn. Um, and, and I you know, saw someone who um, had posted about legal design and I, I reached out to them. Um, and from there, you know, just kind of started looking into, well, well, what is legal design and, and why is it different from, you know, design generally um, or design thinking generally or design thinking in, in different contexts, like what, what really makes that different. And so, um, you know, it's been a really interesting journey so far. Um, it, I, I kind of thought at first, well, I'm, you know, approaching this new world of legal design that's probably you know, kind of light years out in terms of, you know, trying to understand the whole picture. And, and then I kind of learned in, in my initial conversation with Nina that um, legal design is kind of still in its infancy. And I think that that um, provides a really neat opportunity for, you know, attorneys like myself who are, who are younger, who, like I said, are purpose-driven and to, um, you know, really want to structure their careers and, and their professional practice around finding ways to solve solute, uh, solve problems that, that exist for people, so. Yeah, that sounds great. And I'm really happy that the bubble is widening and we have new people joining um, who are interested in legal design because we're all in this together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I think it's, it's also really interesting too what I've kind of found with legal design as a US-based attorney is, um, the fact that it, it seems like a much more, um, I wanna say well-known concept to attorneys in different countries, particularly in, in Europe and in and, and parts of South America as well. Um, and so that the opportunity that, you know, kind of coming into and exploring the world of legal design provides for an, a, a US-based attorney like myself to network and talk with mm -hmm. other attorneys from other countries and get a much better perspective of what it's like to practice law in different areas and, and how other people are solving problems that are kind of, um, that are kind of common to the practice of law, no matter where you are. I think that that's a, a really, uh, a neat aspect about the world of legal design. And the idea for this podcast episode was to talk about legal culture uh, in general and and the specific pain points that should we should focus on in, in creating systemic change and how it looks like from uh, especially the um, private small practice point of view when you are we assume a bit closer to the field let's say and and uh, people's everyday um, problems but um, let's talk bit first about the legal culture uh, in US. Um, we can say that legal culture, uh, it's an universal phenomenon and we can, we can find things that uh, we can, as lawyers, relate. But yet jurisdictions around the world, they do have significant differences. And um, one interesting thing to me when I, I moved to Atlanta, uh, coming from a very modest and formal legal culture in Finland um, was to see so many law firms advertising uh, very appealingly on the radio and, and on the roadside billboards, especially. 
And it, it seems to me that U.S. really is a big market for legal services. And of course, U.S. is also known to be the country with the highest number of lawyers in the world. And, and some, I, I, I hear people even saying that U.S. is the lawyer's heaven. Their lawyers can earn so much money. <laughs> and um, well, um, and the funny thing is as well that when people in, for example, in Finland, when they think of the legal culture, they they picture it as it's uh, shown as to in, in courtroom, courtroom dramas on TV. And I think um, also for me and Hannah, the, the basic knowledge we have about the U.S. legal system is based on these TV series such as Matlock, which is my all-time favorite, and, and Ally McBeal, The Suits, and The Good Wife. Um, so now that we have a chance to talk to you, Zane, um, as a real uh, <laughs> U.S. attorney practicing law in U.S., um, what is it is really like to, to be working in, in the lawyer's heaven? <laughs> I mean, that's a that's an interesting question. And I, I mean, I think it's interesting to hear that, you know, people around the world kind of refer to the U.S. as the lawyer's heaven, um, because I do think in a lot of ways it is. And, and um, especially, I think, in the way that our legal system has kind of developed and evolved on its own the profession, um, you know, and, and I like to think of you know, the profession as being something that's separate from the legal industry, but they're both really just intertwined in a way um, that for years attorneys have kind of fought off, um, you know, and, and kind of really just guarded that professional territory of attorneys do legal work and nobody else can really operate in this sphere. And I think, you know, now, now with uh, the explosion of technology that's available um, at, the, at the fingertips of tons of different practitioners um, and also at the hands of, you know, kind of outside legal service industry providers. Um, it's, it's really opening up that, that marketplace, you know, but I think it's, it's interesting like that you mentioned or you talk about the legal culture and in terms of how different it is depending on where you are geographically um, and, and in what jurisdiction you are. I mean, I think it, it, it is fragmented even more than that to, to an extent that I didn't really realize until I went, I actually went out on my own and, and created my own firm. And I actually went out at first a couple of years ago thinking, well, 80% of the civil legal needs in the U.S. are unmet somewhere around there. That's, mm -hmm. that's like the estimate. And, um, you know, I kind of went out and, and, when I think about the 80% of people whose legal needs are unmet, I think about the people who were in the neighborhoods and communities that I grew up in, working class people who, you know, aren't necessarily struggling to get by month to month. Um, they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck, but they have a good job. Just that if, you know, they had a major expense or if they lost that job, you know, everything might go haywire. And so, you know, with that, they don't necessarily think of themselves as being able to afford an attorney. They might not know an attorney. And, and I really thought of myself as going out um, to create this law firm where everyone who didn't have an attorney to go to 
would have a, a person or a firm that they could reach out to and feel that they could trust to, at the very least, get the next steps on, on where they go and, and at best um, find an attorney who could you know, represent them and advocate for them. And I kind of learned as I started off and, and was doing work in a lot of different areas and a lot of different um, you know, practice areas that it's just there's too many differences depending on what sort of practice area you're practicing in. Like there's a there's a certain culture around practicing family law mm -hmm. and there's a certain culture around, you know, doing criminal defense work. And there's a certain culture around um, doing litigate commercial litigation for business or doing personal injury work. Um, and so, you know, I think beyond just talking about geographically, you can break down the kind of divisions in the culture within the legal profession around practice areas and around age and around the type of firm that it is in terms of the firm size. Like there are so many different ways that you can really break down what that, that legal culture looks like. Um, so I can, I can, you know, getting around to actually answering the question in terms of what my experience is like, I can speak from the perspective of a young attorney who's worked at a small nonprofit in a uh, relatively large U.S. city um, and who is also now working as a solo attorney focusing on, on working with new entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, I think my experience, like I said, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty purpose-driven person. Um, so I have like the, uh, kind of a vision in my head about where I would like to see my career go and the type of um, impact that I would like to have on um, the profession as a whole and, and just like our legal system. And so for me, if I had to compare my experience to a show, it might be something like um, How I Met Your Mother. Um, <laughs> and I'm not if, if you're if you've seen that show before or not. But the way I think of it is kind of like I have this vision in my head about how the story is going to end. And now I'm kind of walking through how we get to that end point. Um, and so that's I, I guess if I had to compare it to a show, I, I might compare it to that. I, I could also kind of compare my experience to maybe like being on. I don't know, like a, a, a like really cheesy reality show that has like, <laughs> that's been running for like seven years. Um, that's had, had like seven seasons and has like recurring characters who, you know, the fans of that show are really familiar with. And like, I, this is my first season, this eighth season, and this is my first season on the show. And so everybody has really established roles and I'm coming into the show kind of figuring out where I fit in and kind of figuring out how I can make a lane for myself um, within that like really cheesy reality show and avoid the people who bring a whole lot of extra drama and kind of find <laughs> that click that I fit with. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of how I would, would kind of characterize my experience so far. That yeah, I love is it. a brilliant way to put it in, just brilliant. <laughs> uh, that's great. Um, okay, so a famous American lawyer, the late Charles Hamilton Houston, once said that a lawyer is either a social engineer or a parasite on society. And okay, us lawyers are called for many things and not all the names are nice but I'm pretty sure that no lawyer actually wants to be called a parasite or to be one 
But then again, the legal system and the social framework often make it almost impossible for a single goodwilling person to fight the system and try to make everything better. Does this resonate to you, Zane? Can you maybe share some some of your experience with us? Um, so I think that that's a great question. And, you know, obviously I'm, I'm familiar with Charles uh, Hamilton Houston. I'm not familiar with the quote, uh, but I definitely think, you know, it's tough. Like nobody wants to be called a bad name and Parasite is kind of like the lowest of the low when you think about, um, yeah. you know, a, a organism that just takes from another organism in order to survive and gives that organism nothing in return. And, you know, at the end of the day ends up harming that organism. Um, and I think, you know, while it's, it's tough to kind of think of what attorneys do in that way, um, there's a lot of truth to it, you know, and, and I think it, you know, to some extent, you could expand this quote, and it's not just about lawyers, but it, it really applies to all of us as, as part of the human family um, across the planet. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's kind of, it, it, to me, it kind of resonates in terms of the, the quote that's attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of um, you know, all that's necessary um, in order for, you know, that the actions of the bad people to, you know, kind of prevail are, you know, for good people to stand aside and, and pretty much watch. And I know I'm paraphrasing that. I just butchered that quote. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, really as an attorney, and I think I've seen it in different ways, but if you're not actually working in a positive way to kind of uh, alter the system and uh, make changes to the system, however minute, um, that really end up benefiting everyone at the end of the day. Um, you end up benefiting yourself off of a system that really works through, I don't, I don't know if you know, harming other, harming other people in, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, I think of it in, in different contexts, you know, in, in the criminal context, um, you know, I think that it's really telling that one of the, in the U.S., one of the um, most predictive, one of the most predictive ways to figure out like whether or not somebody um, will actually end up being incarcerated is their zip code. Um, and the fact that like, no matter, you know, what your background is, if you come from certain areas, the chances of you going to prison or going to jail or at some point being incarcerated, um, it's, it's almost like your, your ticket is punched and it's, and it's a predetermined thing. Um, when you look at, again, like I mentioned in the civil context, 80%, somewhere over 80% of all legal needs go unmet in the US. And then I think even when you look at the legislative context, which we oftentimes leave out, but that, that attorneys play such a major role in, um, in our legislative process in the US, um, whether it's federal, state, or local, and the fact that um, the public at large really doesn't have any sort of control over how legislation is passed, what legislation gets gets brought up, um, and, and what legislation ultimately passes and what's in that legislation. Um, you know, if as an attorney, you, you know, as an attorney, you, you work within this system. And if you're not actively working to change some of this, these things to make 
and bring about more justice, then at the end of the day, you're, you're really just benefiting from the system that ends up, you know, creating harm for a lot of different people. And I think one kind of example that that sort of comes to mind is I was really surprised working in the nonprofit space um, when I started off to find out how much of a really a big business it is. You know, I, I think that for people who get into doing work in the nonprofit space, um, you're, you're purpose driven. You, you really at the end of the day, you want to spend your time helping people. And, you know, so I think everybody has that mindset. But then at the end of the day, um, a nonprofit is still a business in order to operate and in order to function. And there's a limited amount of those resources available. So whether it's grants or donations or whatever the case may be, um, you know, there is, you know, there's a finite amount of resources and, and nonprofits are, are jockeying for those resources. And I think, you know, part of what, what I've seen end up happening is that, you know, larger nonprofits can definitely squeeze out the smaller ones that are more proximate to the issues that if they had the support of those larger nonprofits um, could bring about and, and really create greater positive change. But sometimes it, it, you know, you get the feel that there's, um, that there are these clicks around, you know, who is in the in crowd and who is not. Um, and, you know, and again, like I've, I've, I've seen that just from my own personal experience in terms of, you know, when I was working in the nonprofit space, I would go out to communities to do community education events and things like that. And I remember getting called to like these super small nonprofits. I'm talking like one person runs the whole nonprofit is like, is the whole organization and they're running it out of their house. And I, you know, I go to their house in North Philadelphia on like some random one way street. <laughs> and there are, you know, five or six people from that community who are in the house, they're ready to get some information from me. Um, and recognizing that a community organization like that has so much to provide to that community um, because that organization is right there in the community. They know all of the problems. What they lack are the resources to be able to, to solve them and to be able to bring their ideas into the world in a way that allows them to experiment and test those ideas. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the really large nonprofit that isn't as proximate, that isn't right there in a community in the same way in order to know and understand those problems. And so they have all the resources, but they lack the perspective that's necessary. And I think that, you know, you kind of need to bring those two together and if that large nonprofit that has the resources isn't supporting those those smaller nonprofits um, in in ways that help them to actually you know bring their ideas to fruition and, and become leaders within that space um, then again those large nonprofits you know kind of become parasites because they just continue to perpetuate what's already in place um, and and so if you're not moving forward you're moving backwards and you know, I think that that's just one example of how that can end up playing out, even among people who have really good intentions. Because like I said, um, you know, when you talk about a parasite, the parasite, it doesn't matter what its intentions are, you know, in, in terms of, you know, the fact that it's eating and that it's causing harm to another or, uh, organism. 
it's just doing what it needs to survive. Um, and I think that, you know, if you have that similar attitude, like I said, as a lawyer or in any other aspect of society, um, then you can look at yourself in that way. Yeah. So as, as you've mentioned, uh, you have an interesting background from working for the uh, Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity. Um, what did this experience teach you about justice specifically and the legal system and, and how the system meets or doesn't meet the needs of the people? What kind of awakenings did you have about this? Um, you know, I think my... Um my experience with Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity was like really game changing for me. Um, I came out of law school and I, you know, I, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew I wanted to work in the nonprofit public interest space um, if possible, but there really weren't a lot of options available. Like I didn't get a fellowship. Um, th there weren't a lot of, you know, in, in the nonprofit legal space, there aren't you know, jobs, you know, don't kind of just come up a dime a dozen, like you have to really kind of be paying attention and, and kind of be in the right place at the right time. And so I got lucky that it, at Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity, um, the, they had a fellowship and the fellow there left and they uh, got the fellowship renewed. And it was the type of fellowship where I didn't have to come up with a, a plan or an idea. Um, you know, they could kind of just slot me in as, you know, the, the fellowship was kind of just like an employment opportunity. Um, and so uh, I had worked with Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity in law, and that's how I was familiar with the organization and familiar with uh, the, the founder and, and the head of the organization at the time, who really had built the organization from the ground up with the help of, of a few other lawyers um, who really, and again, this is like kind of described as to be proximate, um, you know, the his name was Mike Lee, and he had, you know, been working as a criminal defense attorney, um, but would basically go to community events like block parties and cookouts and stuff, set up like a legal table and just kind of offer people, you know, like I'm here, I'm a lawyer, you know, come talk to me if you got questions. Um, and found out that people were having issues with their criminal records in a way that, you know, was actually relatively solvable. Like there was a, a process through which people could go about getting their criminal records cleared in order to, uh, you know, shed the stigma that came with that record and be able to move on with their lives. And, um, and so he noticed that that was an issue and just decided I'm going to, uh, I'm going to attack it. Um, you know, got together, like I mentioned with a couple other attorneys and created this organization, Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity, um, that, at the time that I got there was, you know, kind of really starting to come into its own. Um, and so it was, I think, really a privilege for me to be able to be in an organization like that, um, that was on to something in terms of being the first within the city of Philadelphia, across the state of Pennsylvania, and really, I guess, one of the first organizations in the nation to really focus on um, you know, helping people to overcome the stigma that comes comes along with their criminal record, and getting to see the the inner workings of house just a few lawyers with a good idea um, were able to solve a problem in a um, really a, a design focused way. Um, you know, by talking to people, being close to the issue, 
Um, but, you know, in, in terms of what I saw um, in terms of how the system fails to meet people's needs, uh, it was, it's, it's just really interesting because, um, you know, you would see, I would talk to people um, and that's why I, I think it's like, it's, it's so important to be close to the issues that, that people are dealing with or close to the people who you're trying to help or the people that you're trying to serve. Because I would come across all these different issues that folks were having because of their criminal record that you would have no clue was even a problem. You know, like people who couldn't get car insurance. Um, a lot of people who couldn't chaperone field trips with their children. Um, a lot of people who, you know, just literally wanted to do community service. I actually, I remember one person who came and they, uh, they had tried to volunteer with a local elected official and got turned away because of their record. Um, and then when they, they had uh, switched jobs and they needed a recommendation from that local elected official's office, um, in order to uh, in order to get the job, they asked that local same elected official who turned that person away because of their record to do volunteer work, wrote that person a letter of recommendation um, to get the job. And it, it just, you know, it was it was you saw so many things that were or I saw so many things that just seemed backwards in terms of uh, the way that people were being treated, but that if you're not talking to people who are having that experience, you have no clue that it's going on. Um, and if you don't know that there's a problem, you don't take any sort of action to fix it. And so that, you know, that really kind of woke me up, I, I think, to the importance of, of being there close to people and really understanding that, you know, the founder of the organization always used to say um, that it, as service providers, as people who are, are acting in service to others, um, that we can take more away from the folks who we're trying to serve than we could really ever hope to give to them. Um, because at the end of the day, their experience is informing the way that we go about doing our work. And so every opportunity that I got to talk with folks was an opportunity for me to learn how I could be a better advocate, how I could be a better servant, uh, a better servant leader to folks. And so I take that same approach um, to the work that I do now as, as a solo attorney in a private firm, um, but still with the same kind of general, um, general kind of mission of trying to uh, you know, make legal services more accessible to folks so that, you know, they can really be empowered to, to move themselves forward and, and realize better futures for themselves and their families. Great. Um, yeah, I got many ideas from, from the story you just told us. Uh, just to kind of summarize, the idea is it just kind of very well uh, highlights the need for legal design and that people are not even aware of the opportunities that they have because they think uh, that the system has kind of pushed them down in a way and betrayed. They may feel that they've been betrayed by the system, but actually the system has uh, solutions for them, but just, they're just not aware of that. So. Um, it's 
problem of communication, the system is not communicating itself well enough to the subject. So, and I think, and I think that's a really great point because I think also I think for attorneys, the system communicates what. Uh, what's an acceptable path for an attorney in their career. And for me, had I not worked at an organization like Philadelphia Lawyers for Social Equity, I probably wouldn't have had the courage to jump out there on my own and, and start my own firm because I saw a problem and I just wanted to, you know, and I think that it, so I think it's important. Um, yeah, I think it's important for attorneys as well to kind of see the possibilities and, you know, just kind of uh, awaken themselves to um, the power that they actually have um, to, to solve problems in really innovative and creative ways. And um, that just because it's never been done before doesn't mean that you can't be the first to do it. Wow. Exactly. And that was such a great story because I think it shows how important it is that we try different things and we try to do whatever we can to make law more accessible to people around us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, you are now practicing as a managing attorney in your own law firm. And um, you mentioned on your website that you want to provide legal services that are affordable and accessible. And I love that vision. That's that is just perfect. But um, could you help us or our listeners to imagine like what does this mean in practice? How could we change things around to make it more affordable and accessible? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. And I'll be 100% honest. I'm still figuring out the answer to that question myself. Um, <laughs> but in terms, you know, some of the things that that I found are helpful um, and that I feel like my clients feel are helpful in terms of making legal solutions more affordable and accessible. I think number one is um, transparent pricing um, and also offering the option of, of fixed fee legal services. Um, I think that it's, I think for people, especially for, for people who aren't used to working with attorneys, um, it's a really kind of uh, ab like uncomfortable concept to think that you're going to pay someone a retainer. Um, they're going to pay themselves from that retainer by the hour. Um, and there's, there's no guarantee that they'll give you the solution that you're looking for. And not only is there no guarantee that they'll give you the solution that, that you're looking for, um, they, they might come back and ask you for more money. And, um, and so you have no clue what the outcome is going to be, um, not only in terms of what they're producing through their work, but you also have really no sort of idea of how much that's going to cost. And I think that that's a really uncomfortable position for people to be in. Yeah. Um, and so I like to think that making legal, you know, offering fixed fee legal solutions and being transparent with your pricing um, are, are two things that make legal solutions and legal services more accessible to people because it, it just, it, it's something that they're more familiar with. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of making my pricing more transparent, you know, I, I have a website that I created on my own, but now I'm in the process of um, either having someone, you know, looking for someone to help me kind of redo that website or somehow finding the time to 
redo it on my own. Um, but um, one of the important things and one of the important changes I want to make to that website is actually listing the prices for all of my services and solutions there on the website so people know um, upfront what they're getting into um, and, and what they can expect to pay. And, and I think that um, it's, it's really interesting that um, to me, you know, just when I think in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, how different service providers and, and people um, provide services to consumers, um, you know, it's always a, a benefit for consumers when they're able to kind of see the price up front. Um, but I also think that for service providers, it can be a benefit as well because you, you know, really have an idea about, um, you know, what you're offering, you know, how much it's going to be um, and, and kind of what, you know, it, from a business standpoint, what your margins are going to be and things like that. So I won't get into kind of like that dry stuff. But um, I also think in terms of making legal services, um, you know, more accessible, um, one of the things that I, find, I think is really important is actually getting out there in front of people and being willing to provide the knowledge and information that you have for free. Um, and I know that a lot of attorneys, um, well, not, I, I know that some attorneys, you know, um, have at least counseled me against doing that. You know, the idea that like, <laughs> if you can get somebody to pay you to, to give, to provide your knowledge and information, then why would you just give it away for free? Um, but to me, I, you know, I, I recognize that I can be a resource to other people um, and that if they're not getting the information from me, they'll, they'll, and they, you know, if they just want free information, they'll get it somewhere, you know, but there are a lot of different people who just want to know, like, what's the next step? Like, what do I do here? You know what I mean? Um, this, this is kind of where I'm at now, where do I go? And, um, you know, I think that, part of just making legal services more accessible um, is, is just helping people to kind of navigate these different systems and processes that as attorneys we're familiar with, but, you know, average people are not so that they can find better outcomes. And so, um, you know, I think that that's, that that's another aspect of it. Um, and, and then I guess, and this aspect is kind of really, um, anamorphous, if you will. Um, it's, it's not really kind of like tangible, but I like to think that my approach to practicing law is a little bit different than your traditional law office. Um, I definitely, so I, I, I run my office virtually. Um, you know, I try to pass those savings on to uh, the clients that I work with. Um, but I also, um, I also think that it's really important for me to get to understand my clients and really listen to what's underlying the, the issues that they're coming to me with so that I can help them find, you know, better solutions. And so I, you know, I, I think that listening is a really important skill that's often overlooked. Um, and so I like to see, I like to think that one of the things that sets me apart as a um, practicing, um, as a practicing attorney is that, um, you know, I had the ability to really focus in and listen um, to what's going on with my clients um, and really take the time to understand the issues that they're dealing with and how all the different ways that I can be helpful. And that, that might not necessarily just be, 
um, you know, providing legal services, but it might also be providing a connection to another attorney who specializes in an area of law that I don't, or it might just be, you know, providing my advice on something that's not necessarily legal, or it might be, um, you know, kind of providing, uh, providing information on where people can go next if it's a problem that's not necessarily legal. So I, you know, I think it's really important um, in terms of providing accessible services and solutions, um, you know, to, to listen to folks and just be really open about understanding all the different ways that um, I can be a problem solver for people. Great ideas. And um, yeah, I think the whole charging by the hour is quite crazy when it comes to consumer clients because they have no idea like how many hours will it take to put together a, let's say, will or prenup mm-hmm. or something like that. And mm-hmm. yet we're kind of expecting them to understand law in the same way that we do so they'll know what they're actually buying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and I mean, crazy. And, and on the flip side of that, as attorneys, you know, you have some sort of understanding about how long something is likely to take you. Um, Of course, you can never guess that with absolute certainty. Um, But I think that as attorneys, we shouldn't be so afraid to take on some of the risk in that situation. I think right now, the way that that pricing has traditionally worked um, when it comes to legal services and solutions, so much of the risk is placed on consumers um, and, and they kind of take on so much of the, the, uh, the risk that they're not going to get a good outcome. Um, and so I think as attorneys, we, it's okay for us to accept some of that risk and understand that like sometimes we're going to, you know, maybe we'll take on a fixed fee client where we'll do more work than that. You know, we'll spend more time on that client um, and, and helping them solve that issue, um, then, then the, you know, kind of hourly value that we placed on our time, but there are going to be other situations where it's the complete opposite, where we're able to, you know, solve an issue in less time than we expected. And, and we kind of end up seeing a, you know, financial windfall from, from that. So, you know, I, I think to some degree, attorneys can take on some of that risk in order to help people. Yeah. Great points. And that's actually a great to mention that there, I mean, if we take in cases with fixed fees, we might end up working a bit more, but then on the other hand, we might end up working a bit less. So it's, there's going to be balance. Mm-hmm. And that's a good way to encourage people who might actually think like, I'm never going to move from the billable hours. And this is my business model forever. And even, yeah, it doesn't make sense anymore, I think, because we're, well, people buy everything else in Mm. a different way, like with fixed fees or monthly service fees or something like that. So it doesn't make any sense to expect people to buy with with an hourly rate. That's what I think. Without knowing what they're having. Exactly, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like yeah. no clue what they're getting. And, and I think to, you know, I also think to some degree, um, well, not to some degree, I, I think to a large degree, um, when you move from a, a billable hour uh, form of, of, 
charging folks to something that's fixed or something that's subscription-based, um, you really align the interests of the attorney as a service provider with the interests of the client in, in a way that you don't when you're um, working on a billable hour, right? And so as an attorney, when you're working on a billable hour, it's in your interest to spend as much time as possible um, providing a solution yeah. to that issue. Um, and the, the client doesn't, that doesn't necessarily benefit the client if you're spending a whole bunch of time, um, you know, it, and, and I think that, you know, it creates this really weird incentive that I've seen operate in different ways and it actually ends up harming people, um, you know, but it, it creates this incentive for attorneys to, you know, draw things out longer than they need to go um, it, because they're seeing a financial benefit from that. And so just another aspect of it. Great. Um, good discussion. I think we were able to point out many things that kind of should be re redesigned in, in the legal system, now talking especially the youth one. Um, to summarize our discussion a bit more, um, saying why do you think we need human-centric approaches to legal practice and why do we need to, why do we need as lawyers actively contribute to the social life of our communities? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's really important that as attorneys, we kind of, we recognize the power and, and the authority that, that we kind of wield within society in terms of having a knowledge and understanding and a comfortability with the different legal systems that we're constantly interacting with on a daily basis, the different systems and processes that we're comfortable with that everyday average people have, you know, no idea about. Um, and I think that, again, kind of going back to what we talked about earlier, if, if part of the solution, then at the end of the day, you're, you're part of the problem. Um, and so I think that, you know, any attorney who, wants to, you know, play a role in making our, our legal systems more just. Um, any attorney who wants to play a role in helping everyday average people to achieve better outcomes when they encounter different legal systems. Um, I think it's, it's really important to understand that in order to do that, you have to put those people who you're hoping to serve at the center of what you're doing. Um, because otherwise you're going to end up missing the mark. It's very easy to step into a situation and have your own ideas and your own narrative, your own story in your mind about what someone needs and how you can go about, uh, you know, helping them to, uh, you know, helping them to find a solution to the issues or the problems that they're dealing with. Um, but it's, it's difficult to do, but it's imperative that we, avoid some of the narratives and stories that we have in our heads to actually take the time to listen to people um, and really kind of carve out those assumptions that we have that we're not even aware of um, because those assumptions end up turning into blind spots when it comes to the ways in which we actually go about trying to help people and, and trying to help them find solutions to the issues, whatever those issues may be. Um, and so I think again, it's, it's kind of centering folks 
uh, centering the folks who are trying to serve and centering the folks who are trying to to help. Um, but, you know, I also think that it's understanding that uh, attorneys don't know it all. You know, I think that context and perspective is incredibly important um, whenever you're trying to solve any sort of problem. Um, and so attorneys also have to be willing to listen to or explore ideas for problem solving um, that go beyond just, you know, law books and, and what's been done before um, in, in terms of legal practice and, and, you know, try to see what is offered out there by other disciplines whether it be design or, um, you know, what, what, whatever other dis discipline that may be. Um, there's, there's a lot out there um, that can be transferred and put into a legal context and, and used to ultimately help people. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Zane, for joining us. It was really inspiring to talk to you and hear your stories and I think this was a great discussion because now we learned how to be more customer centric from the small business from a small service provider side so this was really insightful thank you uh, thank you I, I appreciate uh, the two of you having me on on the podcast um, I, I love having discussions like this um, and and I hope that you know, the discussion that we're having and the discussion that the two of you are continuing to have with other practitioners from around the globe um, will continue to spur additional discussion um, that's really needed in order for all of us to understand how we can be the best advocates that we can be. So um, I'm grateful for the opportunity um, and, um, you know, I hope that at some point, you know, we maybe we get to do it again. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing more of you, Zane, in the future. Thank you for being our guest and thank you for listening to the Legal Design Podcast. For more information about us, please visit legaldesignpodcast.com. You can also follow us on our social media accounts on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn.